Well, let's um, consider that John chapter 17 that we've just read together. Um. <clears throat> I want to start by getting you to think what it's like to be an outsider, to be an outsider, someone new, someone who doesn't belong. Uh, I remember the first works office Christmas party that I was invited to uh, when I was a student doing my placement year. And uh, I thought, yeah, okay, Christmas parties, I've heard they can be kind of rowdy places to get along to, and uh, some questionable things go on there, you know, especially if the, if the company's paying for all the alcohol and whatnot. But I thought, you know, I've been to parties before, I'll be able to handle it. And uh, got to the party, and there I was seated on a table, and I, well, I won't even relate to you the sorts of conversation that were going on. And the whole while I was eating this meal, I was just thinking, I wonder if it would be rude to try and leave before the dessert gets brought out. You know, I, I felt so much like a, an outsider. I felt so embarrassed, so out of place, like a like a fish out of water. And perhaps you felt a similar emotion. Uh, maybe if you if you start in a new job, or maybe if you start in a new school, maybe if you're given a job to the to do that you're not really qualified for. Maybe if you're interacting with a group of friends that you've never really met before, perhaps on a stag do or hen do or the like, you've known something of that feeling. But even within the church, we are not totally immune to those kind of feelings of being an outsider, being different to those around us. Maybe you get that sense sometimes of comparing yourself to others in the church and wonder, am I really as good as those Christians? Am I really as strong in my faith? Am I really as faithful in my service? Um, Or perhaps you so enjoy the safety and comfort of the church, for example, uh, coming to a place like this where you can speak openly about your your faith, sing all your favourite hymns without any fear of embarrassment. Uh, Any step into the outside world seems like such such a giant leap. Uh, that any area away from the church feels like you're an outsider. Well, on Jesus' last night with his disciples, he knows that they are going to step into a world where they will be outsiders. The world is going to hate them. They are going to be fearful. They are going to be persecuted. They are going to experience the joy of great success, followed very quickly by great opposition. They are going to have to manage the stress of Poor decision-making in their management and leadership of the church. Uh, They're going to have fallouts among themselves. They're going to be in prison. They're going to endure poverty. There's all sorts of difficulties going to come their way. And so in Jesus' last conversation with them, he speaks really to encourage them, knowing what they are going to face and trying to encourage them in those difficulties that they will face. And so you get, for an example, just the, the last verse before chapter 17, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you'll have trouble. Jesus is very clear about that with his disciples. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And that's the intention of this whole uh, last conversation, and especially this last prayer. Because what he does then, once he once he said that, take have peace in me, He then prays for them. And the prayer is, I wonder if you noticed, it's quite an unusual prayer. It mainly seems to be description. I think you could summarize the prayer into about five simple requests. But you've got this whole chapter where Jesus speaks to the Father about the things he's praying for. And the reason Jesus expounds on on his request so thoroughly and adds so much extra detail to, to the very simple request that he's making is given to us in verse 13. Jesus prays to the Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
He's praying to his father, but he knows his disciples are listening. And no doubt he knows that you too are listening through the written word. And so he prays deliberately in a way that his conversation with the father would be a cause of joy for those who are listening, especially the the disciples who are there with them. And it's Jesus' intent that this prayer, if the disciples can grasp it, remember it, and recall it to mind through those difficult periods of life, they would know that there is confidence that they can have that those things Jesus prayed for have not been forgotten, have not been ignored, but are still true even today. And that can be a source of joy for them as they feel like fishes out of water, as they are hated in the world. And my aim is today to look at what is the confidence of Jesus' prayer? On what basis does he make these requests to the Father for his disciples? And if you can understand why and what Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples, not only do the disciples get joy from knowing those things, but I believe we too can receive joy from the same truths. Three reasons we can have joy, even when service seems difficult. First, We can have joy because we can know, we can know that we belong to the Father. That we are cherished by the Father, that we are loved by the Father. That's a cause for joy. In verse 1 to 5, we'll skip over verse 1 to 5 a little bit. Jesus mainly is praying for himself. He's saying the time or the hour has come. That hour is the hour of his death and his resurrection. And he's asking for the Father to glorify him in it, to achieve what that hour was always meant to achieve. Make it reveal your glory. And so he prays that. Um, It would have happened if this prayer wasn't made, I have no doubt. Uh, It had been foretold in the prophecies for hundreds of years. But Jesus prays it so that his disciples would know that what is about to happen was not a failure, but was all part of the plan. And then verse 6 onwards, Jesus moves on to praying not about himself and his own work, but he prays about his disciples. And for the first uh, three or four verses, really we've not got a prayer, we've just got description of who he is praying for. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking about uh, who are these disciples. They're the people who have had God revealed to them. He defines them as those to whom the Father has been revealed. Now that's a significant point to start with. Because what's he already said in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And so if the disciples are those who have had God revealed to them, the disciples are also those who have eternal life. But then he goes on, verse 6, I've revealed you to those whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they obeyed your word. Three times in that first couple of sentences, Jesus says, these disciples, Father, they are yours. Now imagine what encouragement that is going to be to you if you are one of the disciples sitting there listening. This is the basis on which Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. It's the reason he can make requests to the Father. Jesus is not like the parent of the child who wanders into school with the child in order to speak to the teachers on behalf of the child. And as they are speaking to the teacher, perhaps the headmaster, they've got to try and persuade the headmaster that the the difficulty that this child is going through is worthy the headmaster's attention. 
And so the parent goes in, uh, perhaps they take their son or daughter with them, and, and they plead the cause of their child, and they say, please, would you listen? And they try and explain uh, as best they can uh, what's going on. But that's not the way the father is relating to the disciples. Not like the headmaster to the child. Rather, what's going on, Jesus shows in this prayer, is it's like the mother seeing her child in difficulty and going not to the headmaster at the school, but to the child's own father. Here is your child who needs feeding, who needs helping, who needs comfort, who needs encouragement, who needs teaching. And as it's your child, would you not step forward and help this child? It's not a a headmaster who needs persuading that their time is worth giving to this child. It's going to the father of the child. This child belongs to you. He is yours. Would you not step down and help him? And that's the basis on which Jesus brings his prayer to the Father. Father, these men are yours. Verse verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you have given me. They are yours first and foremost. Yes, they are my disciples. But, verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And often we think of Jesus as being God's gift to us. But I wonder how often you think of yourself as being God's gift to Christ. Isn't that an encouraging thought? There's a real difference between the gifts. Of course, when God gave Christ to us as a gift, it's for our benefit. When God gives us to his son, Christ has to pay for that gift. It's more like giving an adopted child to the family. The the benefit of the gift is not in the one who receives the gift. The benefit of the gift is for the the gift itself. That's like you. You've been gifted to the son. And in so praying, Jesus opens up to the disciples the reality of their position before God. There will be times in this life where they feel like they don't belong where the hatred of the world comes down heavy upon them, where they feel like fish out of water, where they know that I am not one of these people, and where the world does its utmost to make that very clear to them. We don't want you. We hate you. Move away. Be silenced. Shut up. In fact, that very night that Jesus is praying for them, they would feel that intensely. And Peter would perhaps even deny his relationship, his friendship with Jesus in order to avoid that kind of pressure. But here in this prayer, they're reminded that although they might feel hated and abandoned by the world, in reality, they belong to the Father. They belong to the Father. There is an eternal relationship there with the eternal Father, rather than a temporary, fleeting relationship that they might be able to secure with the world around them. This prayer, you will have noticed um, so far, I've been speaking about Jesus praying for his disciples. Now, I'm sure you can expect where I want you to go with uh, what I've drawn out so far. I want you to know that if you are a believer in Christ, you belong to the Father. You have been given to Christ, and I've already spoken about that. But is it legitimate to jump from a prayer which is about the apostles to then our situation? Are we owned and belonged? But Do we belong to the Father in the same way that the disciples did? And I would say the answer is yes. 
And I say, I acknowledge that perhaps in a strict sense, Jesus is praying for the disciples. And in verse 20 of the prayer, he shifts his prayer. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, indicating that probably was purposely had in mind the apostles. Yet the, the basis of his confidence in his prayer is just the same as for the disciples as it is for you. Jesus is praying because they already belong to the Father. But I, I believe the same is true of you as well. John has made much of the fact that throughout his gospel, that anyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus only comes because the Father draws him. So in chapter 6, he says, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Again, no one can come to the Son unless he is enabled by the Father. No one can come unless the Father does that work in him. But also, alongside those things, John is also repeating Jesus' words to us, saying, those who do come are those who, in the end, choose to do the will of the Father. And so he's not saying that God just uh, takes us and moves us like uh, automatons or robots and uh, against our will to the Son, because you've been chosen and you must come. But in fact, God chooses. We belong to the Father. And then God opens the way for us to respond in faith. By our own choice, John describes, so that our faith is made certain. And so for you today, if you are a believer, it is first because the Father has drawn you, but also because he is, because you have chosen to believe in the Lord Jesus. And so you're not a, a lonely, wandering pilgrim, or, or you're not that, that child who has to use Jesus as their parent to go and plead to the Father uh, on their behalf. Like a child might take their parent into a school to deal with a headmaster. No, you are a child of the Father. You belong to the Father. And he is shepherding you. He knows you. And he knows your situation. Now, when you feel you don't belong, isn't that going to be a comfort? Yes, I don't belong to the world. I don't fit in with the conversation and the ambitions and the, the desires of the people around me. But the Father, he claims me as his own. I may, I may feel isolated and lonely because of my difference from the people that I live with, for example. But the Father, he claims me as his own. And some suggest that these sorts of truths can be a hindrance, for example, to evangelism. They can be a, a discouraging thing. Is it just that you've got to wait for the Father to choose you and draw you? But, but actually, I'd say the opposite is true. Far from hindering us, doesn't it give us encouragement to, to speak to the world around us? To say that there is a Father who is drawing people to himself and that that choice is revealed as and when individuals choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's so far different from the, the image of um, the stern judge for whom nothing is ever good enough. It, it breaks you free from a view of God as just being one other authority that stands above you, that you've got to do what you can to try and appease him or to please him. That's what so, so many other of the authorities in our life seem to do. Whether, whether those authorities are, are, are self-imposed, the, the ambitions that we put upon ourselves, or whether they're picked up culturally. Legalism, self-righteousness. You've got this, you've got this authority over it that you're, you're always trying to please and you can never make it. But to see that God is a God who chooses people and draws them to himself is to realize that I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to earn my way up to him. Actually, he's drawing me to himself. He's offering all that he can so that he can call me his own. 
He delights to call me his own. I'm treasured by him. I am loved by him. There is great joy in knowing that you belong to the Father. The second source of joy is from knowing that we are protected by the Father. We are protected by the Father. So having laid the basis of his request, Father, these men that I'm going to pray for, they belong to you. Jesus then moves on to his prayer. If you look at verse 11, this is where his prayer really really starts. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Here's what he prays. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Protect them. Again, in verse 15, he says the same thing. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Protection from what, I wonder? Protection from harm? Protection from opposition? Protection from difficulty or poverty or or uncertainty? No, I don't think so. Um, The What we know of the lives of the disciples doesn't fit with that kind of protection. And that's not the protection that Jesus is praying for. In fact, even in this prayer, Jesus is saying, the world is going to hate them. And I'm not asking that you take them out of the world or out of that hatred. So this protection is not that the disciples will never suffer any difficulty. The protection is explained for us, actually. Verse 10, uh, verse 11. uh, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. It's not a prayer to make them unified. It's a prayer that they would enjoy and realize the unity that they already have. It's a prayer that the Father would protect that unity that is already theirs. And the reason that Jesus is praying for protection of that unity is because the unity can be attacked. And that's picked up in verse 15 when he prays, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I don't think this is a totally separate request. I think it's similar. The unity that he prays for protection is going to be attacked by Satan. And Satan often uses the hatred of the world in order to attack that unity. And so in verse 15, he's saying, protect them from, you, protect their unity. Protect them from the evil one. What is this unity that he's been spoken of? In the prayer, Jesus implies that the unity that the disciples enjoy together is similar to the unity that he has with the Father. And so it's a unity of task or purpose. So, for example, I'm looking at verse 22 here. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, or that they may be united, just like we are one. Okay. So the unity of the disciples is similar to the unity of uh, the Father and the Son. Now, the Father and the Son share a unity because they're both working for the same task. We saw that in the opening of the prayer. The, the Son has done the work that the Father sent him to do. Uh, they, they, they're working towards the same aim. Their unity is also a unity of what you might say holiness. There is a certain morality that underpins all that they do. They both are working towards uh, the same definition of what is right or what is good. Jesus is himself perfectly revealing the name or the character of his father. And then the work of the evil one is to come in and break up that unity at any turn that he can. Now the disciples are going to feel the pressure of the evil one. They're going to feel the unity of the church and their own unity threatened. You read through the Acts of the Apostles and you hear about Ananias and Sapphira, uh, who uh, 
almost bring disunity into the church by their selfish giving uh, to seek glory for themselves rather than adding to the pot that brings glory to God. They want to take that glory for themselves. You, you look at, uh, you read the letter to the Galatians and you see the door opening slightly, ever so slightly, to disunity coming into the church, separating Jew from Gentile. You hear repeatedly Paul writing about heresies that have been taught in the church. You read the letters to the Corinthians and you wonder how the Corinthian church can even be called a church at all, such as the disunity uh, within that assembly. And don't you see the same attacks being leveled against the church today? Perhaps at the, the wider global church, you see Satan attacking the church, attacking the unity of the church. You see uh, Christian leaders falling from faith, falling from uh, a position of honour, misusing, uh, misusing their powers and their influence. Or perhaps closer to home, you feel the pressure of politics, uh, stressing the relationships that you have with brothers and sisters, even within this same congregation. And we've got to be the first to admit, over the past few years, there's been all sorts of political issues that have put stress upon the relationships within the church. And we've not got that right every time. And, and that stress often bubbles up and, and, and causes arguments and fights to break out. Perhaps it's not been political issues with you. Perhaps it's just personal issues, one with another. You won't sit next to a certain person in church or uh, you, you can't bring yourself to have those sorts of conversations with them. There's all sorts of ways disunity is brought in to the church family. And what are you supposed to conclude then? What were the disciples supposed to conclude? What are we supposed to conclude when we see Satan seemingly attack the church so successfully? Are we supposed to conclude that the church is just a, a ticking time bomb waiting to self-implode? Waiting for everybody to just fall out and, and call it a day? Or rather, are we supposed to see that actually the church is not our project, it's the work of God? And he will protect his church. And so he is going to protect the unity of the church. And so although the gates of hell will, will press against the church, they will never prevail against it. The church will be built and the church will continue to grow. The Holy Father is working to protect his people. He's working to protect both the congregations and the individuals within those congregations who bear his name. And although there may still be some individuals who turn away, and Jesus refers to the example of Judas in his prayer, verse 12, it's not as though God's purpose for his church is failing. They were doomed anyway to destruction. That's the way he describes Judas. Joy is not freedom from the battle. The joy comes from knowing that the battle is already won, even while we continue to fight it. The victory is secure. The church is protected, not by our own strength, but by the strength of the Father who calls it his own. The third source of joy that I want to see from this prayer is the source of joy that comes from knowing that we, as we walk through the difficulties of life in obedience to Christ, are bringing glory to the Father. As we walk through the difficulties of life in obedience to Christ, we are bringing glory to the Father. The last request that uh, well, I'm focusing really on verse 6 to 19 today, uh, and in there I think there's three main requests, and the third of those requests comes in verse uh, 17. 
Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What is meant here by this prayer that Jesus makes for the disciples? Sanctify them. If you've got an NIV, you've got a footnote at the bottom that says uh, the Greek is hagiatso, which means set apart for sacred use or make holy. Jesus is praying, make them holy. How are they going to be made holy? By the truth. Your word is truth. Look, before we go any further, you've got a real simple reminder here of the importance of submitting yourself regularly and often to the truth of God's word. Scripture, the Bible. I don't want to make a a legalistic rule that says uh, every believer must read a portion of the Bible every day or else they're sinning. I I don't think you can do that from Scripture. You've got to realize that it's possible to be a Christian whilst still being illiterate. And actually for 1,500 years of the church's history, most Christians were illiterate. I don't think you can say that a Christian must read God's word every day. But equally, you've got to recognize that believers will, well, all people, will be judged based on the gifts and opportunities that they had available to them. Now, who are you? You are not, most likely, one of those illiterate many. You are well-taught, you can read and write, and you've got God's word in your laps, in your pockets, almost every hour of the day. You've got God's word not just written down, but read out for you. You've got God's word preached to you. Any number that There are more sermons than you can ever possibly listen to available at the click of a finger to you. God's word preached to you, explained to you, shown to you. And so if we try and claim that oh, well, it's, there's no law that says I must be reading God's word, then we're being fools, really. We're missing the opportunity that is available to us. And we've got a responsibility to use those opportunities well and to submit ourselves to the truth of God's word so that it can begin to shape our lives and our thinking and our attitudes and our ambitions and all that we do. And so I just encourage you to think again. Are you regular at getting the influence of God's word into your life, into your ears, into your eyes, into your heart? Are you allowing your mind to be renewed, transformed by the influence of God's word? But verse 17, I don't think just is about God's words, the written scriptures. Um, In John's gospel, Jesus himself has been described as the word of God and the truth. And so when Jesus in this prayer prays, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, then any intelligent reader is starting to think maybe he means more than just the truth that he's written down for us in the Bible. In fact, he refers in some way to himself. What, what is that way that he's referring to himself? Well, in verse 19, Jesus compares his own situation to that of the disciples. He says in verse 19, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. What's he referring to here? I sanctify myself. I set myself apart for holy use. That usage he described back in the first verses of the prayer. He came to do the will of God, to to come to the cross, to reveal the glory of God. That was his hour of that was his hour, that was his time that he'd come for. And so Jesus is saying, I'm sanctifying myself, I'm setting myself apart to do your will, and this is where it's going to take me. It's going to take me to the cross. It's going to take me to death. I sanctify myself so that they too may be truly sanctified. 
Verse 18 offers another link. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is saying, Father, I have come to do your will. I've kept your law perfectly. I'm going to continue doing your will, even when it takes me to the cross. Even when I have to suffer your wrath on their behalf. I'm going to do that. I'm going to set myself apart, not for my goal, but for your goal. I'm going to bring you the glory. Now, Father, in the same way that you have sent me, I am sending these. And so now we can make more sense of verse 17. Sanctify them. Set them apart for your use by the truth. Your word is truth. As they see more of who I am, use them to reveal your glory to the world. But the prayer is simple of verse 17. Show your glory through them. But the implications of that prayer, when you start to meditate upon it, are much deeper. The implications are that Jesus is praying for the disciples, lead them single-mindedly down a path of obedience, just like I walked, even if that path leads to the most severe suffering. Lead them down that path. So that you might show your glory through them. So that they might walk the same path that I've come to walk. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And isn't that the way the truth led the disciples? The disciples saw that Jesus was the Messiah. The disciples saw that Jesus was the the answer, the incarnation to all the promises that God had ever given to the Jewish people. And so they refused to stop sharing the good news about this man, even when those Jewish religious leaders threatened to put them to death, put them out of the synagogues, put them out of the communities which they'd grown up in, put them out of their families perhaps even. Yet they they walked that path of suffering and rejection because they knew the truth about the one who was the truth. Similarly, the disciples recognized the truth of the resurrection of Christ, which they have now seen in Jesus, the one who is the truth and the word. And so they contrast the the emptiness and the rottenness of the glories that the world offers to the reality of the glory, the true glory that is found in the resurrection of Christ. Which ought I to pursue? Paul had all of the world's glories and he says, now I consider them rotten, nothing, worthless, dung, refuse, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and receiving that heavenly crown which is mine in him. He sees the truth of the resurrection and it leads him down a path of suffering as he rejects all the emptiness, the deceptiveness of the lies of the world. Now, the truth will set you free. There is no doubt about it. The truth will set you free, Jesus says. But it doesn't necessarily set you free from the battle. It doesn't necessarily mean you escape from the fight. The opposition and hatred that the disciples endured for their commitment to the, to the word of God, the one who is the truth, is still the same opposition faced by many believers today as they proclaim that same truth, as they seek to follow in the footsteps of the word, Jesus Christ. And it's easy to think of those who live in countries where even to mention the name of the truth is to be put to death, to be sent to a 
a prison camp to be put out of your community. But even for you, in 21st century England, walking in the footsteps of the truth could lead you down a path of suffering and difficulty, where it would be much easier for you to step aside from that path and follow some other route. You see, the path of truth says difficult things sometimes. The path of truth says things like, my sexuality is an issue of morality, not just preference. And therefore, to walk in the path of truth might mean for you that you have to endure, that you have to suppress certain impulses and feelings in your hearts and minds in order to follow the one who is the truth, in order to submit to the truth that he has revealed to us. Similarly, to know the truth through God's word is to know, for example, that marriage is a lifelong commitment and that despite the pain and hurt it sometimes causes, that it is worth pursuing rather than backing down at the first hurdle. Because you submit to the truth of God, which says marriage is, is worth pursuing. And it is a lifelong commitment. You, you perhaps might know the truth that life is precious. That each and every individual is a person made in the image of God. And so to walk the path of that truth might mean bringing into the world that unborn child. For who you, it would be much more convenient to have it, its life terminated. Or it might mean walking the path of caring for that elderly relative, even through those extended last years of their life, when this person who you once loved becomes aggressive and violent towards you. And yet you pursue a life of care and provision and nurture for them, because you know the truth that each and every individual is made in the image of God. To walk that path of truth might mean walking down a path of suffering when it might otherwise be so easy to turn from that path and walk an easier route. To know this truth is to know that, for example, your, your children are a gift from God towards you. And so your role as a mother is valued and precious. And therefore it's worth prioritising your role as a mother, perhaps over some other things which compete in your life. Even if there are aspects of life that you have to put aside, that others might term equally as fulfilling. Because you are walking the truth that says these children are a gift from God to me, to nurture, to care for, to love. And you could go on repeating examples. To follow the truth, whether you mean the instructions of God's word or whether you mean the one who is truth, Jesus Christ. To follow the truth may lead us down a path of great suffering. But Jesus prays that God would do exactly that for you. That he would lead you persistently on that path of truth. So that you might be obedient to God in that path. And so that glory might come to God through your obedience. The path is not untrodden. There is one who's gone before you, Jesus Christ. He sanctified himself. He's walked that difficult path before you. He knows what it feels like. He's there with you every step of the way. The path is not untrodden. But also the path is not without a purpose. Each step you take in obedience is revealing to the world that there is one greater than I who is worth serving, who has a greater gift in store for me than 
any of the empty treasures that I forego as I walk along this path. Christ has prayed for his people that their sufferings would achieve the end that God has designed for them. How encouraging to us as we trudge on through what is sometimes described as the muck of life. We can be encouraged because we know that we belong to the Father. We can be encouraged because we know the Father is working to protect us. We can be encouraged because we know that our path through suffering is bringing glory to our Father.